You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's time for us to take your questions, your science-related questions, and Dr. Chris Smith is fielding them this afternoon. What's your fascination, your preoccupation, your ob- just your curiosity and obsession in the science world? 011-883-0702. Hello, Chris. Hi, Azza, how are you? I'm super, thank you. Good to be with you again. Um, The questions are already coming in. We had one earlier that I think we should play back and hear your thoughts on it. Um, Take a listen to this, Chris. Hi, guys. Uh, Just a curious question. I just want to find out if animals uh, can be born mute, like the mumu. I don't know, like I've never seen a dog that cannot bark or I don't know, but it's it's strange. I mean, some of, or rather, human beings are some are born mute. So can you maybe the doctor give a bit of a light there as to why you know if uh, uh, it's other way? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, we're getting to the lines in a moment, but uh, your thoughts on that one, Chris? Well, you know what they say, never say never in medicine or biology, (laughs) because pretty much anything is possible. If you say nothing can ever happen, you're going to be wrong. And that's the one time you can say always and never. The bottom line is that um, in order to to have an animal not be able to make any sounds, there would have to be a problem with its vocal tract. Now, that could happen. You could end up with an animal that has a malformed vocal tract or windpipe, because the way we make sounds is that we have these vocal cords or vocal folds which are flaps of tissue which can close across the airway. And when we speak or we make sounds, what we're actually doing is opening and closing those vocal folds at a certain rate. And this creates vibrations because it interrupts the flow of air that's coming out of our lungs. And the the vibrations caused by the air stopping and starting then echo around our throat and mouth and the bones of our head to make the sound that we produce. So if you had something that interrupted that process, either the vocal folds didn't form properly or the nerve supply stopped them working properly, it's possible that you could end up with a mute animal because developmental disorders can happen that will affect any part of the developing animal. And so, yes, I think it's perfectly possible an animal could be born with a malformed vocal tract so it couldn't make noises or or a problem with its nerve supply in just the same way that this can happen with with humans. Mm-hmm. So I I do think it's possible but I'm not aware of any examples but I'm sure they do exist. Yes, now imagine it would compromise its ability to survive in nature. You know, birds rely on Quite, their ability yeah. to, to chirp or, you know, that sound is part of their, their survival. So it would compromise Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Next we have Alistair calling us from Randburg. Hi, Alistair. Hi, Zania and Dr. Chris. Um, I think you had something similar like my question on yawning, but I recently watched a video clip of a guy who gets onto a train and he's watching a humorous sketch on his iPad Mm. with his earphones plugged in. He starts to laugh a bit and more and more until he's barely laughing. And as we watch him, the camera pans to all the other commuters and slowly but increasingly everyone on the train starts to laugh as well as even uh, even though none of them can see the actual video. They're laughing because he's laughing. Is it very spontaneous and not staged? So my question is, why is laughter or happiness infectious? Is it a mental and a physical chain reaction? 
Oh, lovely call. Thank you for the question, Alistair. I think the answer to this, Alistair, is that because we're community animals, we hang around together, we socialise together, we bond together, we share messages, not just with speech, but also non-verbally. And bonding is a shared experience. And so when people do things that they find funny and it makes you laugh, we tend to join in and that makes us feel closer to each other. It's a shared experience. And it's why when you see a comedian with an audience, they're much funnier, often people will say, than when you just watch them on the telly. They'll be funny on the TV, if you, but if you watch sure. it on your own, it's not as funny as if there's a bunch of people watching with you or if you go and sit in that audience. And it is part of the shared experience. Laughter is infectious. And, it, and it's part of the fact that we are a social species and we are so successful because we bond. How do we bond? Because we share our good times and we support each other during the bad times. And mm. I think it's all part of the same thing, that it, it sets you up. And, and the thing is, people being helplessly engulfed in laughter is in itself quite funny and when you see someone who is just in paroxysms of laughter and cannot help themselves and you know you'll see tv presenters who and other people when, when you get people who are quite experienced you try to make the other person corpse it's called corpsing and you try to inject something into the dialogue that will make them lose it and you just watch how they desperately try and control it and then they can't and then they dissolve into paroxysms of laughter and that then takes down the rest of the cast and crew as well and uh, and it's actually more funny than what they were going to say originally because um it's a shared experience but also it's funny to see people finding things funny we 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 find that hilarious in and of itself because it's a person who's out of control and that is funny right chris while i flip through my dictionary so that i can understand your answer properly paroxysms well, a paroxysm is a sudden thing, an eruption or a change or a sudden outpouring or outburst. So something that's paroxysmal, you'll suddenly go into a state that's a brand new state that take, takes over. A paroxysm of coughing is a sudden flurry of coughing. Uh, you can have paroxysmal fits and seizures, for example. You can have a paroxysm of laughter. It's a sudden eruption of something happening a lot where previously it wasn't happening in a person that causes them to end up in some degree of trouble or uh, alter their state. Yes. Wow. The challenge in learning a new word is to adapt it and adopt it and then not adapt it, but adopt it and then start using it in your own everyday speech. I'm going to start looking for opportunities to say paroxysm, a paroxysm of X. We'll see. Thank you for the question, Alistair. Nancy, you're in Ravonia. Hello. Hi, Ravonia. Um, I just wanted to ask the naked scientist a question about caffeine. Um, are, are we born, are some people born with, um, like, uh, a natural, um, what can I say? So I feel like I'm allergic to caffeine, right? So from a young age, I've just never been able to handle the smell of coffee from afar. In offices, I struggle, I always have a headache. Um, and I've never drank coffee, I've never wanted to drink it. I just have always grown up with that thing that it makes me sick. Is that a real thing or is it just me mentally thinking coffee makes me sick and gives me a headache, makes me nauseous, mm. even when I haven't drunk it, just from the smell of it in the office or somebody else or driving through a drive through and smelling the coffee, it just makes me feel really, really sick. Yes, maybe we, we should distinguish between caffeine and coffee because there's yes. caffeine in <laughs> drinks like Red Bull and the like, energy drinks, I should say, and also in things like green tea. So it's specifically coffee that you find a toler an intolerance for. 
It's coffee. And as you were saying, like, if I drink an energy drink, I will feel the same way. I'll feel really sick and low, low, low Mm -hmm. on energy and nauseous. So, Mm. yeah, is it? Is it a mental thing or is it possible that I was born with a certain thing that makes me allergic to those type of ingredients? Okay. Thanks for your question, Nancy. Your thoughts, Chris? Coffee is my favorite beverage. <laughs> I can't get through the day without oh, loads of the stuff. I, How many I'm, addi- I'm really addicted to Oh, five, six, easy. And you How many sleep do you five? Do? Is that a lot? Yeah. Oh. I can have a coffee before I go to bed and I will sleep. <laughs> I reckon I'm so overloaded with the stuff yeah. that it just doesn't affect me because the levels are so high to start with. If I had another cup at bedtime, it's it's already off the scale anyway. So, you know, what's another cup <laughs> in that situation? But um, Nancy's got a point because caffeine is actually a poison and it's a poison that plants make as a natural insecticide. Because insects that eat plants, they actually get a dose of the caffeine and it will poison them. And it puts them off of eating the plants because it tastes bitter. And that's part of the reason why we like drinking coffee. It gives It's one of the things that gives coffee its bitter taste. It's so-called a plant alkaloid. It's a family of chemicals called methylxanthines. And we like it because when it gets into our body, it actually potentiates in other words, boosts the effect of the hormone adrenaline. That's the first thing it does. And so you are put into a high adrenaline state. So you feel more enlivened, invigorated. You feel more keyed up. You feel like you've got more energy. But it also gets into your brain and it prevents the chemical called adenosine, which builds up during the daytime in your brain, from docking with the detector in your brain for adenosine because that's how you work out how tired you are. As the day goes on, you build up adenosine in your brain. And the more adenosine that binds onto the sensor for adenosine, the tireder you feel. When you go to sleep, your brain flushes out all the adenosine and resets the system. So if you put caffeine into the system, the caffeine gets between the adenosine and the detector. So you can't tell how tired you really are. So you don't feel sleepy and you can go for longer without feeling really fatigued. And if you are feeling really fatigued, you can offset the effect by having a strong coffee with a load of caffeine in it and it has that enlivening effect because it makes your brain feel that it's less tired than it really is. Mm. Now when we take this chemical into the body it is broken down by metabolic pathways. The liver does a lot of this detoxification and if you have metabolic pathways that break this stuff down that means they are informed or they're made by the genetic code. And In recent years scientists have found that there are different forms of the pathways that break down caffeine in different populations. So some people tend to find that they can tolerate more coffee and hence more caffeine than others. And some people actually respond much better to coffee and are more likely to get symptoms if they don't have coffee because they've got hooked on it than than others. So it may well be in Nancy's case that she's just very sensitive to the effects of caffeine because A, she doesn't drink any and there is certainly a, a tolerance effect. Once you start drinking a lot of it, you do find that you get used to having a lot of caffeine in your body and you don't get the same negative effects. So it may be because she hasn't had much caffeine in her. As a result, she, she's very sensitive to it. That's the first thing. The other is that she genetically might have one of these metabolic pathways that doesn't actually break the stuff down very fast. So it builds up to very high levels very quickly from just a small dose and will trigger all of those negative effects, many of which have probably now become a kind of placebo effect where because she's had negative effects in the past 
she's now learned to expect those negative effects when she encounters things that have got caffeine in them or smell like things that have got caffeine in them. So even without the caffeine, she's already feeling a bit queasy before she's even drunk any. Mm, lovely. Um, that's, uh, at least it helps understand what's going on. Next, we've got Joe in Kilani. Hello, Joe. Uh, hello, Rosania. Zania, I want to ask the naked scientist with regard to vaccination. Uh, what is the optimal number of people to vaccinate per week to prevent the development of mutants and to prevent the spread of the disease in a population the size of South Africa or the UK, about uh, 60 million people? And what distribution channels would you use to optimize this uh, vaccination process? Right. Sure. Hi, Joe. Mm. These are very important questions. And what Joe's getting at is that we're now in something of a cat and mouse game with the virus because in countries that have got high levels of virus growth and spread, there's more opportunity to disclose variants of the virus which have the ability to sidestep the protection conferred by vaccination. So the faster you can get the levels of circulating virus down, the better you are, are going to be because you're less likely to A, have people with coronavirus, but B, disclose new variants of the virus. So the answer to the first part of the question, how fast should you do this, is as fast as you possibly can, starting with the people who are most at risk, so that you then cut down the numbers of deaths that you will get, and that means chiefly older people, people with pre-existing health conditions that we know place them at high risk of coronavirus, and then you, you filter down the age spectrum after that, because with younger age comes lower risk of coronavirus. And we hope that by doing this, and by doing this at scale, you reduce the impact of the virus and you minimise the chances of it actually disclosing a variant. We think that you probably need to get to between 60 and 80% of the population vaccinated to reduce the risk of the virus spreading, but that doesn't take into account to the fact that there could be variants that will come along that can bypass the protection of the vaccine mm. and spread anyway. And the fact that that is a, a fear worth voicing is that in Brazil, where they have the Brazilian variant, and it's called P1, there's another one called P2, it shares many of the same genetic changes that the South African disclosed variant has. But what they are finding is that in one particular region of Brazil, the Manaus region in the north of Brazil, where they, they've had a big surge in cases recently, they've got people who were known to have had the previous coronavirus parent infection and recovered from it, and they're now catching the variant which argues it might be able to bypass the natural immunity that comes with infection anyway. So again, this gives us some reason to suspect the best approach is to get the levels of the virus down as low as possible, vaccinate everybody, and then also hope that the vaccines, even though they might not completely prevent transmission of the virus, you'll still get some circulation, they nevertheless suppress the chances of a person developing severe illness. And mm. we think that's probably likely to be the case. Thank you for that question, Joe. Uh, next, we go to Wandile calling from Winterfeld. Hi, Wandile. Hi, Aza. How are you? Good, and you? Yeah, I've got a question for Dr. Chris. Yes. Yeah, I was watching a program uh, during the weekend. It talks about effing, about people working barefoot and getting charges from the earth and healing of, uh, of ailments. So I wonder how true that is. Okay. Earthing and walking barefoot, okay. Uh, and yeah. you said that we're able to receive a charge from the ground. 
Yeah, it starts from the earth. It goes the earth. Through, through the foot Feet. and throughout the body, and then it relieves inf- inflammation and quite a few ailments. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yes. Hi, Wendela. I'm not of the opinion that that's true. Certainly, if you walk around with rubber-soled shoes on and you've got artificial fabric clothing on, nylons and so on, then rubbing those things together, the, the movement of walking can, can rub those surfaces together. And because these things are non-conductive, they're insulators, you can act like a capacitor and you can charge up bits of your body. And this means if you touch something, you can go snap and get an electric shock, a static discharge, because the charges that are built up on you can't go anywhere because you're insulated from the ground by your rubber-soled shoes. If you're walking around barefoot, then because your feet are a little bit sweaty and damp and they're in connection with you and therefore the ground, actually that that doesn't happen. So you'd sort of see the charge from clothing and that kind of thing ebb away into the ground quite naturally. But um, I'm not familiar with there being any evidence that as people walk around, charge comes up out of the ground and does something special to their body. I, I think that's probably someone trying to sell you sell you some snake oil, as it's, as it's referred to. In other words, sell you uh, a concept which isn't true and supported by evidence. So I would say I'm very sceptical of that claim, but it's certainly true you can build up charge in your body if you do wear insulating shoes. And if you do do that, watch out, because there have been cases of people actually setting their petrol tanks on fire wow. this way. And uh, they've actually documented this in America, where uh, often it's it's ladies getting in and out of their car. And it turns out that um, in countries where you can put the fuel filler in, mm-hmm. lock it off to fill the tank, what women often do is to then get back into the car to get their handbag to pay for the fuel. And as they do so, they're sliding on and off across the seat. Sure. And this gives them a static charge. And then when they go back to their now full fuel tank and c- get hold of the fuel delivery spout to turn it off and retrieve it, there's a spark which comes off of them onto the earthed fuel delivery spout, and that spark is enough to, to ignite. Rarely, does ha- it's rare, but it does happen, the vapour that's coming out of the now full fuel spout, and you get a fuel tank fire. And so, sure. you know, that, that's one thing that could be avoided by walking around barefoot. But no kind of charge that can relieve inflammation in the body when you walk barefoot. No, I mean, we, we do sometimes use... Uh, electromagnetic radiation okay. to and other forms of, of light, infrared, for example, to help tissues to heal or to promote uh, interventions like physiotherapy, but certainly not any kind of walk in a certain way and you'll get better type approach. No, that that's not true. Got you. Chris, another fascinating afternoon. Thank you. It goes so quick. It does. It always does. I mean, we've had cries and people saying, make him an hour. Make him a whole hour. <laughs> we'll see what we Well, we you know what do. they say. First, there are two rules of comedy. Number one, always leave people wanting more. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Then we'll be back for more next week because we do have another date. Thank you so much, Chris. All right. See you soon. Bye-bye. Wonderful. That's Dr. Chris Smith, our Naked Scientist.